This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an award-winning storyteller, successful motivational speaker and humorist that has been inducted into the National Speakers Association Speaker Hall of Fame. Her new one-woman show, Who Hijacked My Fairy Tale, is being presented at performing arts centers around the country. Coming up, I discuss public speaking, theater, and strategic storytelling with an artist that does it all, a mouth from the South, Kelly Swanson. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Nice to be here. I had the opportunity to see you doing a bit of your one-woman show. I went and explored your website, and I thought, you know, you have a lot of areas of expertise as a speaker and a writer and a performer that I thought our listeners might enjoy hearing. So tell me this, as a motivational speaker, who was the first speaker that you saw that made the impact on you that said, I want to try that? I want to do that for a living. See, I didn't grow up listening to speakers in our family. If you were a motivational speaker, that was cheesy as all get out. We would have laughed at that. The first person, it wasn't a speaker. It was a storyteller. And it was at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, when a storyteller dragged me to that festival and I sat under a tent. I watched a lot of them. So I can't name one. Donald Davis, Kevin Kling, Bill Lepp. But I remember that moment, Pat, that I said, oh, my gosh, that's who I want to be when I grow up. I was already grown up, but I was like, that's what I want to do. I had no idea if anybody could make any money doing it. But I was like, that's it. If I could do that and just tell stories on a stage. And then somebody said, go check out Garrison Keeler," And I was like, who? <laughs> so- no, I hear you. And, you know, you mentioned Kevin Kling, who I think is an extraordinary storyteller from the Minnesota area. And I remember hearing things that he had done on tape and written some plays. It's great when somebody has an exceptional voice that's unique to themselves. I agree. And so how did you find your voice? First of all, this kind of came about earlier because I was the picked on kid, the bullied kid, the weird kid. So I created my own town and all my characters. And that sounds weird, maybe not to people listening, but to very weird. I saw things people couldn't see. I escaped inside of my own little world. So stories were my refuge. They later became my art. So I always told stories and wrote down in my journals the stories of what these people did. They were about nothing exciting. They were just my stories. So that was always my voice. And it became my art because it turned out I stumbled Somewhere along the way in college, it was still my secret. I just was an English major because I didn't know what else I wanted to do with my life. I thought I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. That's the extent of it. What else do you do in life? But because I was an English major and continued to write stories, I was immersed in that world. Fast forward, I took a writing class at a community college later in life and a bunch of teachers were in it. 
And they said, we had to read one of our stories. I was like, oh, I'd never really read them out loud to anybody. I read the story. They said, oh my gosh, your story's good, but the way you tell it is even better. Will you come to our school? And so I started going to schools and I fell into the storytelling world. And so I immediately thought that I needed to tell other people's stories. So my voice disappeared. You know, you said, where did you find your voice? I didn't. I went to go, oh, okay, I need to do this. Where do I find my stories? It didn't occur to me to use my own, you know, because a lot of storytellers were taking other people's material and telling those stories. Then eventually I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to get in trouble for telling other people's stories. This probably isn't legal. Maybe I should consider telling my own. When I got into the speaking world, I immediately looked around and said, this is too weird. Speakers don't look like me. They don't do. I'd come from the storytelling world into the, I'd met Jeannie Robertson, who said, you are not going to make money over here. Go be in the speaking world. Wrap it up over here. And I was terrified, Pat. And I looked around and went, oh my gosh, this doesn't fit. Nobody's going to buy this. They don't want a town and all these characters. They want a speaker. And I went inside myself and said, well, what stories do I have about Kelly? This thing appeared where I just became this funny, motivational speaker telling stories about my life. So that was my voice. But during COVID, I had a come to Jesus moment where I was like, wait, life is short, and I'm not telling the stories I was supposed to be telling. So how do I go back and be that voice I was supposed to be? And how do I merge the two? Tell me the name of that fictional town that you created. It's called Pride's Hollow. Which is now subsequently uh, the name of a podcast that you have as well? Yes. How old were you when you were creating Pride's Hollow as your escape? I can't remember because I don't remember not doing it. But I will say that it became more developed. And to be honest, the town did not have its name for many, many, many years. I went back to go name it. And I even had a different name once and I changed it. But there was more thought and intention put behind what am I going to name this place that has lived inside my head all these years. But you populated the town with all sorts of characters and this was the life you wished for yourself because you were running away from other parts of what was happening to you. I guess that's what people say now. They say, Oh, that's escapism. That's, that's, that's very common. And, And since I teach storytelling now, And some of that dips into the area of the story you write in your head. Since I'm a motivational speaker, I talk a little bit about life is what we choose to see it. For a while, I felt like I wasn't being authentic because my stories aren't real. They're made up. And then one of my friends said, your story is just as real as the story anybody chooses to live in. And that's when it clicked. And that's when everything, and that was recent, That's when I'm like, that is what I'm about. I created a story I could live in, and that's what all of us do. Reality is this much. Well, you can't see me. I'm doing a little bit. And what we walk away in the story we write is everything else. But but going to that storytellers conference, is that something that you continued to do then? I continued to do it for years and to be immersed in that world and to figure out how does one make money at this? Could this actually be my job? It wasn't until a little bit later when I met my husband that he was like, you do realize people will pay you for what you can do. It just didn't occur to me. And it's hard. And maybe you can relate to this being an artist and you're inside of it. It doesn't look like anything special. And I already had low self-esteem. So it was really hard for me to believe that somebody would want to hear what is in my head. But I was in the storytelling world for years. And then when I met Jeannie Robertson, 
I was telling stories somewhere and she came up to my table and I had my little cassette tapes and I'm selling them in the back. It was like at the best of our state festival for a magazine here in North Carolina. And she said, you have a talent and doing it this way is not how you're going to be able to do it. So when I shifted and jumped into everything speaker and marketing and business and everything that most of my storytelling friends considered the biggest sellout of all time, I left that storytelling where I could not. I took what I had learned there. And I'll tell you, Pat, watching those storytellers, that's where I got my learning. And it was so cool because I never looked to the part in the speaking Mm -hmm. business. You know, they're like, well, well, wait a minute. You're supposed to have a St. John suit. You're supposed to be, you know, I never, I mean, I look like Melissa McCarthy. I mean, it just didn't fit the corporate look. And it just, I could have them eating out of my hand because what I found out was what they really wanted was a good story a powerful story. You are a person that knows how to tell a story with impact and with humor to leave people with resonating with something. And on your website, you talk about a story-driven life. So tell me what that means. That references what I said earlier when when I say we write the story that we live in. And if you're going to write a story that says you can't do it or you're stupid or you're ugly or nobody wants to be with you, then your brain and your body often don't know the difference in what's real and what is imagined. And you can, in effect, create the world around you based on the narrative that you put in your heads. That's what I mean when I say, let's lead a story-driven life. Let's understand the power of the story that we're writing How do we recognize it? How do we change it? How do we reprogram? How do positive affirmations, whatever that may include. And I use my own story to teach story. So my speaking is my journey through story and how I learned to change it. And there are different stories that embody that. But that's what I mean by a story-driven life. We write the story we live in. And I've got a lot of friends who I call them my West Coast friends who've known this stuff for years, who've worked on their inner self, you know, but this was all news to me, the power that we have over our minds. I don't come at it as a therapist or a counselor or even as an expert on that. I come at it as somebody who has fallen in love with the power of story. And I simply learned how to create an inner script that works for me instead of against me. And and that's all I'm doing. What's great, though, is once you understand that you're the author of your story, you can begin to create moments that are the chapters you want to live. I always looked at life as, if this is an autobiography, do I want this chapter in my life or not? Like That's the decision of, do I do this stupid thing or I do this other thing? It's looking at it with a sense that I might be looking back at it one day. That's a good way to look at it. I like to often say, what's the story you're writing? Is it truth or are you writing this story? Forever, I wrote a story that says, men don't care what I have to say. I can only speak to women's audiences because men aren't going to resonate or connect. Now, we don't need to talk about where that would have come from, but that was a story I was writing. So if I got a group of men that called me for a say, I would sabotage myself in the sales call. If I would get on a stage and I'd see men in that audience, I had to learn to say, this is not the truth. Mm. You're writing a story here and you need to change it and create a different story. And a lot of us are living by lies that we wrote. Sometimes my friend will say, oh, well, they only care about such and such. I'm like, well, is that true or is that a story you're writing? Oh, wait, I don't know. Maybe that's a story I'm writing. Yeah, we do make assumptions. We also overhear things. Or I know when I was directing actors and they would come into casting, they were always concerned with, oh, what do they want? I want to be what they want. I wanted them to bring themselves to the party. 
I wanted to see how they interpreted it because the closer they got to something that was authentic to them in many ways, the more engaged I was as opposed to if they played a big character or they did something to try to become a tough guy. It's like, well, but how would you address this if you were backed into a corner? I guess that was the part that was most interesting is I would talk to people sometimes in an interview and they would be really interesting. And then they would read the part and somehow they were not as interesting because they were trying to be something else. I had a hard time when I went into the theater world, which is new for me and new as in 2020, because I went, wait, no, I'm not an actor. I'm not acting up here. And I even had a bad feeling in my body when I would say, no, I'm not acting. I'm, you know, I'm not, this isn't a play. I'm talking to you. And, and one of my friends said, you are acting. You are acting authentically in this moment the way that you would. She explained it much better. But but I've often had had to really grapple with, wait, I'm not an actor over here. I'm just telling my story and you want me to act. And they're like, no, we don't want you to act. We want you to to be who you are in this setting. Actors are telling stories. They are playing a character within a story and they have a life within that. But when you're addressing an audience in a theater and a one-person show and the fourth wall is essentially down, it is a direct address. That's interesting you say that because I thought that if somebody put me in a theater, I had to be bigger, different, more, and learned that I don't exactly what you're saying. And it almost feels like I'm cheating because I'm like, it can't be this simple that I can just sit here and comfortably tell you what happened to me like I'm telling you on my sofa. Of course, it took years to write it all and not everybody can get up and do that and spinning it into the speaking world. And I know you've seen this as well. You're in both worlds also. I also coach speakers on their speeches or their stories. And one of the biggest mistakes they make is becoming somebody else up there. And it's fake and it's canned and it's too polished. And it's, I'm like, you're having a conversation with your audience. You're not given a performance. You're talking, they may not talk back. Well, in some cases they do. If you're not the same person you are, I want to see the same person you were when I sat down here and had lunch with you as I see up there. And if I think you became somebody else, then I'm going to distance myself. That's interesting because that's exactly how it has to be in the speaking world as well. If you're going to change the minds and hearts of a thousand people sitting in front of you, you better, because they can sniff it out if you're fake or you don't even mean what you're saying. And I think there's, there's a big difference between motivation and manipulation. Yes. And that's really what you're talking about here. When you're motivating somebody, when you're giving them insight or you're inspiring them, and then they take from it what they can that will impact their life, it can be it can change a lot of things. When you're up there trying to manipulate people's feelings, that's kind of a sales approach that is, it's awkward. People kind of leave feeling like they're watching a carnival barker that's going to sell them some you know medicine. Right. Or, or, or this fake interest. Somebody said, Kelly, how do you connect and engage with your people like that? And I said it in a nicer way, but I can say it here because I'm not naming names. I was like, well, it starts with actually caring about your audience, which you don't. You're not present. They can sense when you don't even care. And a lot of my audiences, you know, I'm going in front of, they may be social workers, they may be nurses, but you're exactly right. I always say, There is a difference in manipulation and motivation. There's a difference in telling people what to do and making them want to do it. 
You can get up all day long and stand on the stage and tell somebody every, everything you know about customer service, but it does not mean they're going to walk away and care about serving their customers better. So the difference in telling people what to do and making them want to do it, and I believe the difference is story because I believe data can't do that. But story can get into a place psychologically in someone. It can take them on a journey in your story and their story at the same time and take them through these emotions because we connect on emotion, not on plot. And you can really like a conductor start to play your audience like an instrument. And yet I always say, please use it for good because you can there is great power to manipulate if you know how to really use story in a powerful way. But that's where I really geek out about storytelling is not even so much, oh, can I make them laugh and can I make them cry? But wow, I just took that man right to the core of, of helping him feel valued for what he does through a story with a character that's nothing like him. The key word you use there is feel. You made him feel. And there's a big difference. I think a lot of people mistake uh, motion for action it would be an example. These words sound very much alike, mm-hmm. but a dessert spinning in a carousel is moving, but it's not going anywhere. So I, I think a lot of people in life are busy, 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 and they're a bit on a treadmill where the idea of taking action to make a change in your life is something that's intentional. Comes sometimes when we see someone else's story or we're moved by anything, music, movies, art, something that says, oh, I I have some purpose I need to fulfill. And that usually puts us into an action mode. And you said something earlier about being salespeople, or you mentioned sales or being salesy. To go to that place, though, for a minute, we need buy-in. When you're a speaker trying to transform people, I always say in that first 10 minutes of your speech, you need to get buy-in from your audience that they can understand they have a problem and a desire and a feeling attached to it, and that you have a solution. Many speakers skip right over the buy-in step of everything and go right to, you need this. And I'm laughing because their audience has got their arms crossed going, you didn't convince me that I needed that. And nobody likes Mm -hmm. to be told what to do. Nobody, that has a pushing action telling, nobody likes that. That's another reason why I love story, because that has a pulling action. And you can just they lower their arms, it's non-threatening, and they climb right on in. I mean, they think you're just telling jokes, and they don't realize that I've already started to connect and engage and relate with them. That's another big thing, too, is I'm going places where, you know, North Dakota, and I'm coming in, and I... I look conservative today, but I've got the big hair, the feathers, the bling. They're like, who let the drag queen in? I mean, it's it's how do you also get on there and connect when they're like, who is this person that is nothing like us? And the next thing you know, I'm telling my story and they're like, oh, well, she's a mom like me. Or, oh, she was a, I was the picked on kid. Or, oh, she's a weird one in her family. And then suddenly we're realizing we're not so different after all. And Cardinal rule of sales, people buy from people they like, trust, believe, and feel like they know. If we want to motivate and not manipulate, how do we make them like us and trust us to to follow us on that journey? And and that's that's what I believe story does and gives us such great power in the world of persuasion. It's all sales and, and it's all persuasion. It's just a question of what's the intent. So if you want people to leave feeling good or upbeat, you are selling them that. And whether that's a sugar pill 
that makes them take it themselves and move forward, or if it's something that you are reflecting back to them as a mirror. Those are all techniques. And so I say this in no way to manipulate people. I had the privilege of looking at Zig Ziglar's speech once at an NSA conference, which is the National Speakers Association. Somebody brought me in and they said, we want you to assess Zig's speech for how he uses humor and story and what percentages and where he makes the turn and where he does the theme. And it was quite a masterwork to watch this man tell stories. Now, if you don't know who Zig Ziglar was, he's the author of a number of books on the secrets of closing the sale and see at the top and various leadership success and positive thinking sorts of books. But they sent me the speech written and I watched him do it. And in it, I could see that there were some very, very extraordinary techniques. Number one, he was very authentic to his voice. He was an Arkansas guy, kind of folksy, and really spoke from the heart. He also never added any humor or jokes that weren't on the point of which he was making. So he didn't do like a warm-up joke or a side thing about two salesmen unless it really tied in to the journey he was on. And that's why his messages resonated so well is that people were laughing and having endorphins kick in at the moment that the message was there, they could retain the joke. And if they retold the joke, they were in some ways sharing the motivation with the next person. So that was really amazing. But he had a very, very successful life as a salesman prior to being a speaker and an author. But what he had a very difficult time near the end of his life where he had a head injury. He had fallen down the stairs and he wrote a different book, a book called Embrace the Struggle, I believe it was called. And the subtitle was Living Life on Life's Terms. And what was most interesting and why that book was so powerful is in all of the earlier power of positive thinking, he was a salesman selling a concept. And in Embrace the Struggle, he was the person that really had to put his money where his mouth was. He had to be the person that had to bootstrap himself up and it did impact his speaking and other things. But his daughter joined him with speeches on stage and they did it in a Q&A form because that head trauma had caused some issues with memory. And he really, really dialed into being the person that wrote the book for himself about how to overcome obstacles. Turns out everything he was doing was preparing himself to have to take his own message and live by it. That's incredible. I love it when a speaker is more than just the information, but they're that they're the journey to the truth that they now teach. It's it's I'm here not just not just because I wrote the book. I'm here because I lived it myself. Zig just was the perfect storm of everything. But as as other speakers are trying to get all those pieces there to do the best they can on stage, being able to marry that, I think sets them apart a little bit in an industry where you can throw a rock and hit somebody, another speaker talking about the same thing I am. None of us is really saying, we think we are, but we're really not saying anything new. It really is the experience that we're paid to create in the room, you know, and how we put it all together. But I love it. It became his journey to the truth. No, of course he lived it. It was very authentic. But now you talk about using the persuasion principle to turn others into story-driven brand ambassadors. How would you describe the persuasion principle? Because you mentioned persuasion a little bit earlier. As people began to come to me 
over the years asking me, how do I do what you do to help me tell a story? Help. And I didn't know I was an, an artist. It was, I was like, how do I do this? I can't. And I'd make them sound like me. And, and, and then I was like, well, how do I talk like them? And how do I get inside of them? And how do I tell a story? And, you know, and I began to see patterns. It's not fancy. I'm probably not the first one to ever see them, but I began to see, okay, everybody pretty much is doing something in one of these three areas if they were to have these three areas working in sync, it would be better. I, I don't ever want to make it seem like somebody's good or bad, or these are all just nuances. But so I began to see patterns and I began to see a you, it, and them. And I wish it were more complicated than that, but it was a you, it, and them approach to everything. And that was, where are you in this speech? You are not here at all. Where are they in this speech? They are not here at all. And this it being the message or the messaging or whatever, it is data. It doesn't have a face either. How do I take this and relay this in a real, authentic, organic, sexy way? way. And, and so when I would look at these speeches or do story makeovers for the, for the foundational aspect of that, I was always looking at, well, you'll be more persuasive if they can meet you as well. And, and and you're not put you in here, get, you're not speaking their language. They don't care about your story. They care about theirs. So that became my story formula was everything was about you. I could look, I would look on a website and I go, this is great, but you're not here. The, the artist and, and it just applied. It worked. The persuasion principle was I began to see that when you're trying to persuade people, connection is key and people don't seem to understand the philosophy behind that or or why it's so important, connection in general. So my persuasion principle is built on three tenets. The first one being that you will connect more emotionally with people. You'll have more power to influence if you can connect emotionally. How do we do that? What does it look like? And it really is tapping into their story, sharing your story, sometimes when you don't have time. That was one piece of it is let's look at connection. Why does the LinkedIn person who sends you an email, you don't even get all the way through it and you're deleting it. And yet this one does. And But the first piece of the persuasion principle is understanding what we're trying to do and why connecting as human beings will b- make you better at customer service, better with your messaging. Your face represents the brand. The middle piece is structure. I believe there's an anatomy to a presentation. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the, what do we, what do we have in common? What's the problem we share? How did I experience? You know, it's kind of like a sales presentation. I believe there is a journey. We take someone on and it weaves in the you, it, and them in there. And then the last piece is story. I thought I was going to be only about story, but nobody was ever ready to start working on the story, which is where I was ready to go. That's really my gift is I can see five minutes of a story from a persuasion perspective. I can't say I'll write as good as you can and the stuff that you've done in your career, Pat, but I can look and say, you're in front of Verizon. Here's what's missing. Move it, move it, shift it, shift it, put this here, put that there, start it this way. And I've done so many of them that it's it's really easy yeah. for me to do it quickly. So I finally said, okay, I'm tired of teaching. I don't want to teach this to people anymore. I want to do my keynotes and I want to meet you on the other side and help you with your story. So I just dumped everything I've learned at this point. And I called it the persuasion principle, talk less, sell more. And it really fits everybody, but it's harder for the cashier at Walmart, even though the principles can apply, than it may be for the person in HR who knows exactly how they're going to use story and can craft it in advance. Is this part of what you're teaching when you do your 
Story Impact Academy. Yes. Do you have advice for people that are trying to be heard, like in a crowded marketplace? It's hard to answer quickly because my next question becomes, well, who are you? Who's your market? What's your message? Where are you trying to, you know, I have so many questions around that, but I will give you basic advice because it's right. The market is crowded. Everybody's noisy. I believe story breaks through the noise. I believe humor breaks through the noise. I write articles all day long, Pat, nobody cares. You know, I do a stupid, funny little joke about my boobs or my best friend Chardonnay, and I'm getting thousands of hits in an hour. Okay, so people that are listening, trying to be heard, the the first thing I would say is really, really understand what your message is. You think you may know it, but there's a journey to go on there. Uh, what, What is your message understand what it brings to people and the world and the good that it is and why it matters. Understand who you're talking to because they're not buying what you have. They're buying the transformation in their own lives. So really understand the pain, the emotions that your buyer, and that could be anything because I say we're all in the business of persuasion. This isn't just for salespeople, but what are they feeling? We did this recently. I was talking to a financial planner. She said, what am I selling? It, you know, insurance. No, you're not. No, you're not. I mean, yeah, that's your product. What are they buying? They're buying security. They're buying, I don't want my kids to have to take care of me. when I'm. You know, they're buying something. And when you can explore that, my next piece of advice is, use story to illustrate this. If you have a good story, I think everybody on the planet would benefit by having a why story. This is what I do and why it matters to me, to the world, and to the people that I serve. And you could have that if you're a doctor. You could have that if you're a stay-at-home mom. But that's that right there. The story of what I do why it matters to me personally, to the people we serve, to the brand, to the world is a beautiful thing to have. And when companies can share that, we've had people in workshops and stuff share the stories. It's just a good thing. You get more tapped in to the value and the purpose for what you do, which is where a lot of people are struggling right now with quiet quitting and the great resignation and people are burned out. And they're, I believe if I can go into every audience And make that audience, in addition to whatever I was hired to do, feel important and valued for the part that they play in this world, Mm. then I've done a very good thing. It's, It's a beautiful thing. And not only that, it makes you a salesperson they want to follow. That in some ways is your mission statement underneath it all, which is to impact individuals, not necessarily the company, not necessarily the brand, but empower the individuals to make a change or to find their purpose. And I think dialing into that, I really liked what you said earlier, kind of breeze through it, but the notion that the product isn't always the very thing you want that the take home is. So I think back to examples like when Mary Kay was selling cosmetics, yes, it was makeup. That was the product, but they were selling them hope that they weren't going to have to stay at home all the time that they could get dressed up and go out. That's what the customer was getting was, this sense that they are, they fit into the bigger world. Yeah. And you're selling yourself. I recently saw on YouTube some personal injury lawyers and I stumbled on their YouTube page and every lawyer in their firm had a, a demo video. And every demo video started with the story of why this work means so much to them. And I thought, this is brilliant because 
we're looking for a lawyer who can go do what we need to do. But in that first minute, you've become human to me and you've connected. I've, I relate to you. I see what this means to you. It, it's I'm buying you and it gives you more credibility. We buy you first. I think that's very important. Yeah. In these bigger world of storytelling, especially in a screenplay or something, they say, don't write a story of man, write the story of a man so that you can see the humanity of yourself. If you're face-to-face in war with two bayonets, you actually see a human being as opposed to if you're in the trenches 500 yards apart just firing stuff up in the air. So it is that moment of human contact that makes us realize that we are all much more alike. And and that's something so neat what you said too, because it relates in other areas when you're standing on a stage as a speaker. I always say, stop talking to a thousand. You're talking to one and don't freak out. Just because you've got 4,000 people in this audience, you need to still look and write and talk and create for the one. When I'm on a camera in COVID and I can't even flip and see my audience now, and they've told me to be funny and inspiring, and I all I got now is a camera, I had to really remember that. I had to say, Kelly, just see their eyes. You're talking to one. And in another related way, when people create their stories in business, they'll often say, we've helped hundreds of customers. I'm like, I can't see that. You need to tell me about Joe that you helped. I can see one or two. Give them a face and a name. You don't have to tell me about the group that you helped. I can't see a collective group. It's sort mm-hmm. of that, but but give it a name, give it a face. And, and the beauty of it is with stories, when you want to connect, since we connect on emotion, you can have a story about a single mother and hit the right emotions that can still grab a bunch of people in that room because they can relate to that emotion, even though they're not a single mom, mm-hmm. you can capture, you can get, you can just tap into many hearts through that, that bridge of emotion. It's sort of like the difference between asking somebody advice for a, a good restaurant. Is there a good restaurant in town or what's your favorite restaurant in town? It's that slight difference in word where there's a testimonial. There's a, I say, Oh, don't leave this town without going to my favorite rib place they're going to go to that rib place. And that is not meant to be persuasive as a sales tool. It's meant to be specifically personal to say, this is where I would take you. And and I think that I'm only saying that from the standpoint of think that way when you're writing and telling a story, find those superlatives, my worst Halloween costume, my favorite shirt when I was a kid. Those become things that people tune into because they know the true stories but you're teeing them up in a way that makes them specifically different than the shirt you wore every other day of that week. Yeah. And I also, on a side note of that, when you're telling the stories, it's not your perfection that people are going to connect with. It's going to be in your imperfection. It is your authenticity and your imperfection that's going to connect with people. So if you're a leader trying to connect with your people or your, however your, your platform is, share the times you messed up or share when you didn't get it right. It's just those simple stories about life. I don't know if you've seen it in the speaking industry. There has been a lot of, I'm going to get up here and brag over the years. I'm going to tell you everything I did. And I'm, and that, does not work. Maybe there was a day for that, but 
bragging doesn't work. You have far more influence when you're not trying to convince everybody how great you are than when you just say, hey, this is something I learned the hard way. Don't make the same mistake I did. When a speaker is humble bragging and promoting, it's coming from a place of insecurity that they would like credibility versus where real strength comes is in vulnerability. When you admit to being flawed or being honest or telling them that you had an obstacle overcome, they trust you more and they're more interested in the story because it is very much, we can all relate to humiliation. We can all relate to fear. And there's not one person I've talked to in all of these interviews on this podcast where people don't talk about some kind of imposter syndrome, some kind of fraud, some kind of feeling of being an outsider, not good enough, even after their third album or their fifth screenplay or winning the Oscar, they wonder, can they do it again? Can they face the blank page with courage and top the last thing they did? So it's built into us, not just as artists, but as human beings to question ourselves. And even with a great deal of self-confidence, when you go to write a memoir and you start talking about yourself in first person, you your tent gets all <laughs> wadded up about Will people care? Do they like me? Do I have anything to say? It's very, very common. Every time I face a new piece and I get a little bit more personal, it, it's painful and yet it's liberating. Yeah, I'll go one day, I'll think I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. And then in the next minute, I'll think I'm just the worst thing. I've got no right to be anywhere. It's definitely a whirlwind. It keeps coming back to authenticity and being real. I'll tell you, my ch- I have a story called Chub Rub Girl about my thighs rubbing together in a pair of sequin pants at an important networking event. And I tell people, you're going to, they're going to forget my name probably by dinner. They won't remember half the stuff I told them, but they'll come to me five years later and go, I'll never forget Chub Rub Girl. And, and there's, just, there's just something so beautiful in that these embarrassing things about myself the things that made me weird and embarrassed and ashamed have actually been my door into connecting with people in a very real heartfelt way. And Well, it's also your unique perspective, your point of view. So that's something that happened to you and you're able to relate it back in a way that shows that you are facing your fear. Really many writers, great screenwriters, great storytellers locate the fear first what is it we are all afraid of? Because that's where the challenges are. In the hero's journey, there's always obstacles in the way of the goal. You mentioned earlier that you weren't you were telling other people's story and afraid to face your own stories. And when you discovered it, when you went into that cave and came out telling those stories, it's changed your outlook. Yeah. And you also learn to do it with strategy because there are people who their story's not ready to be told yet. They haven't figured out uh, what the gift is in it. Or I've got a friend, Jeffrey Van Dyke, who says, don't tell a story until you're through bleeding from it. You don't want to ramble through it. Here's a great advice for people. If you're going to tell your story, understand first why you're telling it and what what's the point in it? What's the lesson? And what do you want people to do as a result? You're not just telling it just to tell it. What's the reason behind it? Uh, people always want to know, what's your process? I was like, I spend more time thinking about a story than I actually do when my pen start to touch the paper. You know, there's more, huh, what is this? Why is it getting my attention? I wanted to say something also about the hero. You brought up the hero's journey. A lot of people have been told that they shouldn't talk about themselves, that they can't be the hero 
in their speech. I always differentiate it by saying, first of all, I know what people mean when they tell you stop being the hero of your story. They don't want a book report of here's all the great things you did. The hero as in Batman, you know, and you save the day and aren't I great? And I came in there and I helped everybody and you cry at just the right moment. I get that. That's not going to connect as much. But you can still be the hero of your story, meaning the main character. You can still talk about yourself the whole way through it, as long as you're talking about me the whole way through it. And I think that's an important thing to differentiate because a lot of the speakers have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when told, I can't tell stories about myself. And I'm like, whoa, 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 no. That's the one thing that's going to make you unique is your own perspective, your own journey you know, your information, people can rip it off and go use it, but they can't take your story. Yeah, I mean, maybe we don't want every story to be about breastfeeding. Maybe we need to make sure you've got a good variety. But that was interesting when you said the hero, it made me think of, that's often a common question. Right. And I think the confusion, and this is what I will clarify, is that you absolutely can be the protagonist. You can be the hero in search of the goal. You may get the goal. You may not get the goal. You may learn something else along the way. You may discover it's not what you wanted, but what you needed to hear. So, yeah, that's a very good perspective to take. But to do a timeline of your life from what you did as a kid all the way till you got to that stage and say, here I am now, I'm a success, is a boring story. Yeah. Even even if you had obstacles along the way, that's what I would call a vanity story. And there is yeah. a, an awful lot of that showcased in the world and There are people who have talents to do other things along the way. But I do think that when people can see their story or a solution to their problem in what's being said, which, which is the same for a good sermon in church. I don't want to hear fire and brimstone from somebody that tells me I'm headed to hell in a handbasket. But if somebody relates it to something contemporary and says, here's the minefield and where everything is hidden, then I go, oh, maybe I can cross that field in a, in a way because I now I understand that I'm I'm approaching it wrong. Yeah, it's a it's a great one. And and some people have no idea where to even start to begin to find stories. So you'll also hear them go, I don't have any stories. I don't even know where to begin. Sometimes I'll say, make a list. This is great advice for anybody listening that doesn't even know where to begin to find them. I'm like, well, what's your advice that you're giving these people? If you're a financial planner, for example, what's your advice? Save money now instead of waiting to do it later? Okay, that's a good one. Well, because story is just an illustration of the point. You're just putting a human face on the point you're trying to make. So I would say to them, Say your advice is the lesson is save money now instead of later. And I'll say to them, did you know anybody in their life who didn't do that? Oh, yeah. Anybody who the payoff was really big. Or how about somebody who did do it? And it, it, it you know, and they're like, oh, yeah. And I went, boom, there's a story there. Most of the burning lessons we have that we would leave our children or our legacy. There's a story behind each one of those. And, and there, there's where you start to kind of go look at in the speaking world. I'm taking it the tool and the speech drives where you're going to go find the story to illustrate it. For my speaking, it works both ways. I'm either looking for a story because this is the group I'm in front of and these are Amish dairy farmers. That was one of my group. And I was like, okay, I need what story is going to resonate with them in my life. And then, and I'm looking for the story that backs up what I want to say. And then other times 
two days ago, I'm in an airport bathroom and I'm peeing, sorry, TMI, but I'm peeing and I hear a woman in a language I don't understand. I don't even recognize the vowels. And she's da, 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 da. And I can hear her singing da, 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 da. I'm like, I know that. I know that song. And I'm thinking of my grandmother and her warm biscuit smelling hands around my face. Da, da, da. And I come out of the bathroom and I wash my hands in case you're wondering. Da, 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 da. I couldn't remember the words to it. My grandmother would kill me. But and next thing you know, me and this woman, she's cleaning the sink. I'm washing my hands and we're singing Rock of Ages. And when we finished, we both looked at each other and said, amen. And she laid her head on my shoulder and went, thank you. And kind of gave me a little wave. And and I, I walked out and I went, what just happened here? Why am I remembering that moment? What did it mean to me? And I haven't written it yet, but I know there's a story there. So I come at it from both different directions. Yeah, that's a great illustration of the power of connection. Yeah. So I know that you have so much more that you can share. I'm going to send folks to your website, which is motivationalspeakerkellyswanson.com. And there's all kinds of stuff there about her story, Impact Academy, and her persuasion techniques. You can also find out about her one-woman show, Who Hijacked My Fairy Tale?, which is a very funny title. And I think probably can people can relate to that. The book said, yeah. <laughs> the fairy tale told us and life did not turn out that way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for investing some time and sharing your insights and inspiration and for motivating us and not manipulating us. We really appreciate that. Hey, it was my pleasure. I hope I left y'all a little better than I found you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la.